When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Tanya Toller for uh, the podcast New uh, Books Network. And I have a great pleasure to speaking with the Fairchild Ruggles, an Islamic art historian, and discussing her new book, Tree of Pearls, the Extraordinary Architectural Patronage of the 13th Century Egyptian Slave Queen, Shadar al-Dur. Welcome to the network, Professor. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So if we start, I wonder if you could tell us something about yourself. How did you become interested in Islamic art? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I became interested very late in life, actually. When I went to graduate school, I had no intention of studying Islamic art. I didn't know what it was. I don't think I could have named a building other than the Taj Mahal. Um, But I encountered a charismatic professor who just made it so interesting. Um, So this was at the University of Pennsylvania, and her name uh, is Renata Hallid. She's still my my, uh, mentor. (laughs) Yeah, that's how I, I got interested in it. Brilliant. So today we are talking about this um, extraordinary woman, Shadra Dur. So may I ask how you became interested in her life, so much so that you wanted to write a book about her? Well, yes, because, um, so again, I encountered her kind of obliquely, where um, my primary writing has always been in the field of landscape history and gardens. Um, and But at a certain point, I was, I was interested in you know, the question of women, It is a a particularly sort of enigmatic question, particularly in early Islamic history, because they don't tend to appear in the texts that much. So they're kind of these somewhat elusive characters. Uh, And so I was interested in that. And I I edited a volume uh, that was on, you know, with multiple authors on multiple topics. And one of the contributors, whose name is uh, Yasser Taba, wrote about a woman from Aleppo, and in that discussion, he just sort of mentioned in passing this Shajaradur and her kind of violent, but also just fascinating life. And I could never get it out of my mind. I was always just thinking about her and, and she stayed kind of on the back burner of my mind, you know, for years, for maybe, maybe almost 20 years, I would say. Um, and, then, and then it became apparent that I was going to write about her. 
I just realized I, I wanted to know more and that she was even more interesting than I had previously imagined. And so I, at one point, she was going to be a chapter in a larger book about, you know, multiple women. And then I realized that she deserved her own book. <laughs> she was, yeah. after all. <laughs> Fantastic. So we are uh, really grateful for that. So we can read um, a very entangled story about her. We, before we go into that, would you mind telling us um, what other aspects of research you're doing? Um, where do you teach? What kind of topics you are interested in? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was trained as an art historian. And as I said, I went to graduate school thinking I was going to study medieval European art because that's what I knew about. Um, but I also have always been very interested in gardens, landscape, nature, the environment. And so I, I sort of took an unusual path for an art historian in that I really became a kind of environmental historian um, at a time before it was, you know, slightly before it became kind of a thing. Right now, to be an environmental historian is a thing. Uh, but, but then it was, you know, I would say I was a garden historian or a landscape historian. Um, so, so I went and taught after that at various universities and colleges as an art historian, uh, kind of maintaining these two things, one art history, the other kind of environmental history. And my research was primarily in that area of landscape history. So for example, I wrote about the gardens of Islamic Spain, which are famous, you know, the Alhambra is famous for its gardens. And it's a very important moment when the idea of gardens kind of crystallizes and, and becomes as important as the architecture. Uh, and then, of course, I also wrote about India, which is the other area where you have this tremendous garden tradition. And I, we could talk about Iran, too. I mean, there are lots of areas of the Islamic world where gardens are a very high art form, higher than uh, we might say in Western art. So mostly I wrote about that. But at the same time that I was producing books on Islamic gardens, I was also producing books and articles on women as a kind of secondary field that was very different because the women don't really get involved in garden making very much at all. And that's a man's thing in the Islamic world. Um, women go to the gardens, but they're not necessarily known as great garden patrons because gardens are associated with territory and territory is a man's thing. <clears throat> women are more kind of, you know, uh, internal and, you know, they stay home for the most part. Um, so, so I had these kind of two threads going in my scholarship. And Tree of Pearls is definitely the kind of maturation and fruition of that, that other thread that I always sort of kept in the sidelines until this moment. And it does touch us upon the landscape as well as hopefully we will um, talk about a little bit um, when we get... Landscape of the city, for sure. Landscape of the city, exactly, yeah. Um, but before we go to actual Cairo... Could we speak a little bit about what we know about Shajar Adur? Who was she and why was she called uh, the Tree of Pearls? Well, you know, like so many women um, who sort of fit her, her biography, we know actually very little about her until she becomes a person of political importance. So her childhood, we know nothing about her childhood. We don't know exactly where she's from. We just know that she belongs to this class of people who were affected by the Mongol invasions, which completely disrupted um, Western Asia and left people in dire poverty, such that we do have sort of historical accounts of families selling their children 
And it sounds horrific, except that by selling their children, they were probably giving the child a chance to survive. You know, a child who might have starved at home gets sold into slavery. The boys probably end up in um, army. This is a form of draft, right? They end up in uh, military training and become soldiers. Um, And then the women become domestic servants. And in some cases, they become consorts, concubines, which is not an unusual practice in this world, you know. There are um, unions that take the form of legal marriage, and there are unions that take the form of concubinage. And so she was a child slave, sold, you know, sold into slavery. Somehow, uh, in her journeys, she ends up at the court, where she must have, you know, you can imagine it's a little bit like going to Hollywood, you know, and trying to make your fortune. Except you don't have a lot of agency. You're, you're brought there. You don't get to choose. And you can imagine that, you know, a, a child, a young girl who's beautiful and who's witty and who's intelligent and quick to pick up um, sort of, you know, cultural norms. You know, quick to be able to sort of cite poetry, quick to be able to sing a song, to catch the sultan's eye, could go places. And this is what happens. She catches the eye of the sultan. He is not yet the sultan. He's, he's an aspiring son of a sultan, you know, who's, who has to compete with his brothers to get territory and become the sultan eventually of Cairo, which is a very important city. You know, Cairo is one of the kind of jewels in the crown at that time in the 13th century. Um, so she catches his eye and also proves her loyalty to him. Uh, you know, we have very little insight into the intimate lives of past people, right? Unless they write in their diary exactly what they were feeling. We don't really know their emotions. We only know their actions and their words, because that's what gets left behind. But in, in this case, there seems to have been genuine affection and trust. And the reason we know this is, first of all, uh, when this aspiring sultan is, at one point, he's caught by, I think it's his uncle or his cousin. These people are all related in in multiple ways. And he's imprisoned for many months. And when he's imprisoned, and it looks like he's no longer a contender for anything, it looks like he's a goner, um, his his attendants desert him. They go off to find someone who's a rising star. He seems to be a sinking star. But she stays with him. So there's this moment of loyalty. Of course, you could also say, well, where is she going to go? You know, where does a a slave woman go. She doesn't have family to go to. She doesn't have a protector. So maybe she didn't have a choice. Nonetheless, she stays with him. He loves her for it. And it's written, there are texts that actually write about his love for her, which is interesting. Usually you don't find that in the the historical chronicles. They don't write about love much. Mostly they write about battles. Uh, But in this case, he, he writes that he loves her. And she bears him a son who in the end, does not survive. You know, child mortality, uh, quite high. Um, so the child doesn't survive. But the fact that she had borne him a son and that that son belonged to this very important lineage suddenly places her out of the category of mere concubine and into the category of the mother of a son of the house. This is the house of Ayub, the Ayubid dynasty, as it's called. So she suddenly gains a new status. So she both has an emotional tie now to the sultan, uh, but she also has a kind of legal status that that separates her from her her previous life. Well, uh, eventually the sultan, through negotiation, is released from his captivity, and he negotiates, you know, they're always kind of 
swapping. They're saying, I'll give you this if you give me that. And somehow he manages to, to gain Cairo. And so they march into Cairo. She marches with him. He's no longer, you know, a has-been and a goner. Now he's a rising star again. Everybody's back with him. He has all these, these large armies that are formed of those men who had been those boys sold into slavery back in the Asian steppe, right? This is how they form their armies. And Shajar Adur is with him. Now, you asked me about her name, and that's an interesting question, because a woman born uh, to a Muslim family, a Muslim woman, would have a Muslim name. So she would have a name like Aisha, you know, or Khadija, or Fatima, or... Um, but if you're not born a Muslim, and so when she's born in the in the in the steppe, she's not born to a Muslim family, and that's something we do know for sure. Because if she had been a Muslim, she could not have been enslaved. So there are these ways in which we don't know anything particularly about her, but we know things about the people from whom she came, and from that we can kind of generalize about what her her life must have been like. So we know that she was born non-Muslim. Know, to these people, devastated by the Mongols, uh, gets sold into slavery, rises for whatever reasons. Um, and so she doesn't have a Muslim name. Instead, she has a typical slave name. And these slave names were these kind of coquettish names like, you know, Lily, you know, or, or Dawn, you know, or Light. They would get these names, well, Light, it's actually somewhat religious, but they would get these names that were sort of frivolous, you know, that, that allude to beauty and charm and grace, which is after all the the capital, the you know what I mean? The the kind of social capital, the the the, the attributes that they had, you know, they didn't have much family, they didn't have connections, they didn't have money, but they had these attributes. They had beauty, for example. So the name Shajaradur means tree of pearls. And if there are any Arabic speakers listening to this, they'll wonder why I say Shajaradur instead of Shajarat Adur. And for the non-Arabic speakers, it's just the difference between a singular and a plural. Um, it's, a, it's a weird way of writing the name, but it is the way it's written in the texts. And so I follow that practice, Shajaradur. So she has this concubine's name, Tree of Pearls, you know, which is this lovely image of a kind of paradisiac, you know, tree. Um, and that's the name that she carries with her throughout her life. That's what they call her in the texts. Although eventually she converts to Islam. And we know this because she also gains a Muslim name. Although they do not call her that in the chronicles. They only call her that in formal inscriptions that are written um, on buildings, on her tomb. That's already so fascinating. One would think that's already a life well lived, but uh, there's so much more to come. But before we go into that, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the Sultan Salih's reign, um, him being in Cairo, and uh, the Ayyubids, who were the, who was this house of the Ayyubids, and subsequently uh, their patronage of, of the city of Cairo? Yeah, like any other dynasty, uh, so the Ayyubids are just one of the many dynasties that ruled in the Islamic world. They ruled in the um, 13th century, um, really, well, 12th and 13th century, um, and they ruled Syria and Egypt, and, and you know, a little bit of Iraq, a little bit of Yemen, you know, it depends on various moments, but mostly just we could say Syria and, and Egypt. 
but they're an interesting dynasty in that they're not strongly centralized. Now, some of these dynasties have a strong central leader, perhaps even a caliph, um, which is sort of like combining both the political and the religious functions of leader into one person. Uh, these are not that. They're just, they're just rulers because there's a, a religious ruler in um, Baghdad, in, in um, Iraq. So the Ayyubid dynasty is comprised of multiple players and they're always fighting against each other. So if you're a member of this dynasty, there's no single leader, as I said, but each city is ruled by a different cousin or uncle or brother. Um, so Jerusalem is ruled by one person and Damascus is ruled by one, and Aleppo is ruled by one and, you know, on and on and on. So they're constantly fighting against each other. It makes it a very interesting, but also chaotic period. Added to this is the fact that they are fighting against this new phenomenon called the Crusades. So they have this Christian presence, you know, sort of that marshals itself, sort of, it sort of launches itself from Cyprus. That's their kind of stepping off point. Cyprus, of course, is right off the coast. Um, a good place to attack uh, Egypt and, and the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, so they're, they're fighting against each other, and they're also uniting with each other to fight against the Crusaders. So it's a very, very, as I said, chaotic, but also interesting time because there's so much mobility. You know, someone who's, as, as Sultan Salih, you know, he's down one moment, imprisoned, and then the next moment he's free and he becomes Sultan of, you know, one of the most important cities, not only in the Ayyubid you know, dynasty, but in the, you could say in the world, you know, Cairo was becoming a very, very important city. So, um, and under him, under him, it, he does become a more centralized leader and that he also becomes Sultan of Damascus. So he's not just that he rises to power, but that he rises to power and consolidates power in a way that um, some of his um, predecessors had not been able to do. He becomes very powerful. So could we also say that he consolidates the power through visual means, through architectural patronage, through the designs and redesigns of the streets of Cairo. So hence this landscaping of the city. Yes, yes. So one of the mechanisms in this period of time for uh, communication, for, for self-expression is architecture. You know, you don't have a newspaper, you don't have a billboard, you don't have the internet. How do you communicate to people that you are important and that these are your values? And one of the ways, so the, the city of Cairo you know, exists, he marches into it. It's a city that he's inherited from the previous dynasty. But one of the things that this, these Ayyubid sultans, meaning our friend Sultan Salih, but also his, his uh, precursors, one of the things they had done was to introduce a new building type into the city. So we already, we know they have palaces, grand palaces. We know they have mosques, multiple mosques for prayer and also for the display of religiosity. But they also introduced a new building type called a madrasa. And a madrasa is a, what today we would call a university. In the United States, you would call it a college. And it's a place for education. It's theological education. So you learn your religious education, but you also, you know, will learn grammar. You might learn some science because these things are not seen as, as mutually exclusive. Um, one of the interesting things about uh, Islamic knowledge is that it is very 
welcoming of all sorts of different, you know, kind of critical ways of thinking, unlike in the Western Europe at that time. Um, so they introduced this new institution, but they also introduce a new building because the institution starts perhaps in the mosque, perhaps in a teacher's house, but then it becomes kind of crystallized into an institution that is recognizable as a madrasa. So it's a type that will have a lecture hall, it will have uh, dormitory rooms for the students and the, the teachers to live there, it will have a staff, it will have a prayer area, it has these kind of components. It has something else that, that many other buildings don't have, which is it has an exterior facade, which may sound absurd, like, well, all buildings have exterior facades, this is crazy. Uh, they don't all have exterior facades because in this you know, pre-modern world, the facade of a big, strong stone building is a really good place to set up your business because you're going to get people going in and out of the mosque, in and out of the palace. And so these buildings get quickly enveloped by lots of little small shops and businesses, and they kind of retreat into the city such that when you walk down the street, you don't necessarily see the building. But the uh, predecessors, the precursors to Sultan Salih uh, had, in fact, started to develop a facade of the city. So their mosques were ornamented, they faced the street, they did not have lots of shops leaning up against them as far as we know. And so there's this beginning sense of, of a street that becomes something more like a boulevard or an avenue where you walk down the street and it's not just a path to get through the city, it's a space in its own right, where to the left you see the facade of a mosque, to the right you see the facade of a madrasa. So you have the religious institution on the left, and then you have this other institution that is kind of religious, but also kind of not religious, because it's it's not where you go to pray, it's where you go to learn how to be a good citizen, a good Muslim, an educated person. So it's kind of halfway between what we might in modern terms call secular and sacred. These terms don't really apply in the Islamic world. I just use them because they, they kind of help us to kind of get a grip on, on what this building was. So his major contribution to the city, Sultan Salih, is to build a grand madrasa in the exact middle of the city on the main avenue that also goes by the major mosques and that goes, you know, when you enter the main gate of the city and you go down that avenue, you pass the major mosque and then you pass his, his madrasa. So he's kind of claiming space in the city for himself. Of course, the madrasa bears his name. It's always called the madrasa of Sultan Sali. Uh, and, and he's also embellishing the city so that what you see in the city, so that your experience of the city is very much owing to him and the way that he treats this madrasa, because the exterior of the madrasa is very much an embellished, beautiful facade with lots of ornament, lots of inscriptions that actually speak to you as you go by, with open windows through which you can hear the lessons and, for that matter, the, the prayers uh, that are happening inside the madrasa, so that it's even acoustically reaching out into the street. So. We can think of him as an architectural patron who's very important. But what we also have to remember is that he's a patron of the city as a city. And I do believe that it is 
not due only to him, but it is in this period that the city starts to take on a character that is more than just its walls that enclose it, close it, but also a character inside where when you're walking through the city, you are aware that this is a grand space. The way, you know, when you walk down Broadway in New York or you walk down, you know, the Champs-Élysées in Paris, you know that you are in a city. This is not somebody's little village. This is a major monumental space. That's what he makes of Cairo. I love those descriptions. Thank you so much. It does bring Cairo also to, to life, um, although we can't uh, really travel <laughs> at, the, at present um, to see and to walk all those streets because they definitely uh, do carry all that history with them. Um, and it seems that Saleh, reading also your, your chapter uh, on this and on uh, Salihia, on his madrasa, um, that this is his legacy, but also he seems to be on his rise. He seems to be on his peak. This is him at its best. Um, and yet it's not to last. He dies at the age of 44, which today um, is very young. Um, but he seems to be quite beaten up old man by that age. Um, you know, reading the descriptions, knowing that he was quite ailing for quite some time. Um, my question was reading your descriptions about the state of the, the country and Cairo at that particular moment. Why did he die without appointing an heir? Well, this is a very complicated question, actually, both because, as you said, he was ailing, but he refused to recognize it. So we think he had tuberculosis. We, we don't really know. Um, this is really for historians of science to argue about, and they do argue about it. <laughs> um, he, he dies ultimately on the battlefield, but not because he's in battle fighting the enemy. He's in his tent dying of tuberculosis and what might have been some form of gangrene. We, we don't really know. Um, it's an interesting story in that because they are in the middle of a critical battle against the Crusaders who are on Egyptian soil and mustering their troops and ships and ready to sail and march down to Cairo and take Egypt. Uh, they cannot let them know that the Sultan has died because of course, in that moment, the soldiers will desert Right? The people of Egypt will lose heart. <clears throat> Excuse me. The people of Egypt will lose heart, and the Crusaders will take advantage and you know push for victory. So they keep it a secret, and he stays, his body stays in the tent where he had died. His advisors go in and out, and Shajiradur, who of course was very close to him, she was, uh, he, he seems to have had one other wife who's mentioned once in the texts, but she seems to have been his close companion. He trusted her with, with running the country when he was off in the battlefield. So she's like, she's a regent. She's appointed as his regent when he's away. And when he's sick, she's one of the ones who makes that critical decision to keep it a secret. So for weeks, they go in and out of that tent, bringing meals, bringing doctors, as if he was simply suffering from the flu or something, um, pretending that he's alive, issuing commands in his name. Of course, you know, we think they're probably coming from her in that, you know, she and his scribe, who was, you know, his personal secretary, seem to be running the show at this point. 
so it's a it's a very dramatic demise. Now, why did he not set up a successor? This is the big question because, in fact, he he leaves the country with one successor, one son. And, and to explain that, I have to backtrack a little bit and explain that he had, I think, a total of four sons. One was the baby born to Shajaradur, who doesn't survive infancy. The other three die on the battlefield. One of them dies um, as a prisoner. Uh, I Was it in Damascus? I think he's in Damascus. He's imprisoned. Uh, he's being basically kept hostage, right, to kind of sweeten the negotiations. But something happens to him and he dies in prison. And then another one, I think, dies on the battlefield. And that leaves one who is serving as governor off in some far-flung province, which was typical. This is how you train the next generation. You send them off to govern a smaller territory where they, they, you know, they learn how to do it. And then you bring them back to prime time in a city like you know, Damascus or Cairo. But this son who was governing off in, in the hinterlands was a son who Salih did not like. <laughs> he distrusted him. He thought he would be a bad leader. Uh, he never wanted him to rule. So in a way, he was sending him off to the far-flung province, not just to train him, but also just to get him out of the picture. And he probably thought that he would have more children. After all, he had had a baby with Shajaradur. They they could have had another one. Uh, who knows? You know, Maybe it was his ill health that prevented it. Um, there is something, without getting into too much detail, there is something about his disease that seems to have affected his nether, you know, his, his lower parts. So it could have affected his ability to have children, uh, more children. So when he dies, and they're keeping this a secret, one of the things they're doing, Shajidadur and his scribe, is trying frantically to get that young prince, that heir, back from, you know, the hinterlands, back to Cairo in before telling anyone that the sultan has died. So they want to say, oh, the sultan has died. Long live the new sultan. They want it to be an immediate transfer of power. But this takes a long time. It takes months, actually. Um, and it's a very much kept secret. They're also trying to keep the journey itself secret because he could have been assassinated along the way. And then also, he's such, a, he's such an unpleasant, uncooperative character that he seems not to have hurried. He seems to have taken his time going to various cities along the way, kind of, you know, uh, bribing people and making friends and kind of setting up a network. That's what we would call it today, a network of support for when he becomes sultan. So, so meanwhile, you know, back in Cairo, they're, they're sweating. They're like, oh, quick, quick, come. We're in peril. The crusaders are here. We need you. And he's off gallivanting about trying to kind of, you know, raise support. When he comes, this young prince, whose name is Furan Shah, when he comes, he behaves very badly. He lives up to all of the worst fears of his father, Sultan Salih. He treats the soldiers badly. He treats the former you know, staff of the former sultan very, very badly. I mean, these are the people who had kept the country safe for three months waiting for him to get there. They had done everything to make his ascension to the throne possible. And then he just dismisses them. He treats them discourteously, which sounds like, oh, that's, you know, it's an insult. So what? But it's in the text. It's in the chronicles. They're actually writing about how mean he was. And he would do things like he was, at one point, he's he's in a, he's drunk and he's in a rage. And he gets mad. and he, he takes his sword and he slices off a bunch of candle tops, right? They're 
It's at night, so the candles are lighting the room. And he slices off the candle tops and says, that's what I'll do to those guys, those, those staff members of my father. I hate them. Well, you know, this, this, you don't do this, first of all. Uh, second of all, it was shocking enough that it makes its way into the historical texts. I mean, they're, they're describing bad behavior. You can imagine there must have been lots of bad behavior. So there's that. He also, and this is the worst, he treats Shajaradur badly. Now, this is the excuse me, this is the wife of his. She eventually has become a wife, right? He she she's moved from the status of concubine to wife. When she has the baby, she gets married to Sultan Sali. She now has legal standing. She's also converted to Islam. She's also been serving as regent of the country, holding it right, ready for him. And he treats her terribly. And one of the things he does is he demands that she give back all of the jewelry, which sounds like, you know, a petty thing, but jewelry is your wealth, right? You're, you don't have a bank account. What you have is a, is a box full of jewels <laughs> and you give the jewels away as a way of paying people and they give jewels to you as a way of paying you. And that's her fortune. And he says, well, that's not your personal fortune. That belongs to the state. Give it back. So really trying to strip her symbolically of her office, right? Of her, of her importance and also just deeply insulting her. By the way, she's not the only one who suffered this kind of an insult in Islamic history. You always hear of women, when you want to mistreat a woman, what you do is you make her give back her jewelry. Somehow that's like the worst thing you can do is like, give me back those earrings, those pearls. Those aren't yours. <laughs> so... Where was I? I got distracted thinking about lost pearls, tree of pearls. Uh, so he treats her terribly. And at some point, the princes, these are the, the kind of the, the net, you know, the, the, the leaders of government. Let's just call them the leaders because they're military, they're political, they're religious. The leaders say, this is enough. We cannot put up with this any longer. And also, they seem to have even lost their cool. They lost their temper with him um, such that they attack him and they kill him. And it's a very violent and very clearly described scene. I absolutely trust that it happened the way they wrote it, um, where they actually slay him. They, they, they chop him to bits. Um, now there's a real problem because he was the last surviving son and he had no sons of his own. And it's very unclear who is going to rule the country. And in this moment of, and, and again, remember, the crusaders are still there. They have not gotten rid of the crusaders yet. They're still terrified that if they are a leaderless country or if they have to wait another three months to get some other Ayyubid prince to come from Jerusalem or Damascus or wherever, that they will, they will succumb to the, the crusaders they turn, of all things, to Shajaradur, to Tree of Pearls, which is the most unlikely choice you can imagine, because she's a woman. I mean, it's just uh, something you, you just never could have imagined, except that she had ruled the country as regent in the past. She was more than capable. She knew everything. She knew the whole story of Sultan Salih and how they had kept it a secret. She had cooperated. She had collaborated. She had perhaps even engineered that whole um, ruse, you know, to keep his death secret. So she proved herself to be a very canny operator. Um, and 
The people knew her. They trusted her. She had been there. She was associated with Sultan Salih. So she was associated with the existing power. And so in an unprecedented move, they went to her and they said, you should be Sultan. And so she becomes Sultan. And this is not a small thing. And we and, and, and then the question you can ask is, well, how do we know that she was really Sultan? Maybe she was just acting as a regent. And the answer is, there's a very clear way that you know who the Sultan is. And it is that from the pulpit of the mosque, in the weekly sermon, it will be read in the name of the reigning Sultan. And it's one of those sort of formal, symbolic acts that lets you know who the reigning Sultan actually is. And again, the texts tell us that from the pulpits of all the major mosques, the sermon was read in the name of the new Sultan, Shajaradur. So she's the Sultan. This is great, right? This solves all the problems. Now they have someone who knows how to run the country, someone who is known to the country, someone who knows all of the leaders of government. Remember those leaders, many of them are coming from the army. So they are also slaves. The way she was born a slave, they were born a slave. And just the way she was eventually freed, manumitted, and became a Muslim and became the legal wife of the Sultan, they, at the conclusion of their military training, were also manumented. So they are free citizens, but they are former slaves. So they share that experience with her, which is to say that ethnically, they are not Arabs from Egypt. They are Turks of some kind. Kipchaks is actually what they are probably. Uh, Turks from, as I said, Western Asia. So they have this. So she has this ability to gain the trust of these very important, high-ranking members of government. All of this is is what kind of conspires to put her on the throne. But and she and while she's on the throne, she manages to not single-handedly, but while she is on the throne, the Crusaders are repelled. She stabilizes the country. There is no internal revolt. There's no external invasion. She gets things stable. And yet, while she's on the throne, the I said that there was a caliph back in Baghdad, um, the kind of religious leader who has very little political power, but has an awful lot of symbolic power. And that caliph writes to Egypt and says, what are you doing? Why are you putting a woman on the throne? And he writes in this very sarcastic tone and says, if you lack men, I will send you. You can just imagine the kind of dripping sarcasm, like basically attacking the masculinity of all Egyptians, right? That that the best that they have to offer is a woman. There's some question in my mind as to whether um, her slave status might have entered into this, but I don't think so. This is an interesting um, aspect of Islamic society is that slavery is a temporary status. And once freed from slavery, there is no lasting... Um, sort of social, you know, stigma on that. Um, So it wasn't that. It was really gender. You know, she was a woman. And so after three months, she's removed from office. She is forced to marry a high-ranking, kind of middle-ranking military commander. And he is the one who is called Sultan. He becomes the Sultan. And she is, is... sort of faced with or, or reverts to that position that so many women 
through history, throughout history, have occupied, which is she becomes the woman beside the powerful man, supporting the man, helping him, giving him her advice, helping to rule the country, but not acknowledged as the actual mover and shaker, right? The mover, the, 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 the central um, sort of brains of the operation. She's not no longer uh, acknowledged as having that position. So it's kind of a, a sad moment for a modern woman to see this. You know, you think, oh, she made it to Sultan. It's like, no, oh, they demoted her. <laughs> then history goes blank for a while, for about seven years. We don't hear much about her. She appears once or twice. Um, there's, you know, there's things, there's these little hints that she's still there. Um, and then suddenly there is an, a very, another violent kind of cataclysmic event where she reappears. And to explain it, I have to go back and explain that when she married this high-ranking military commander, when she was forced from the throne, forced to abdicate, the one condition that she imposed was that he had to divorce his existing wife. And the reason is that she was not going to become wife number two. Shajaradur was always going to be number one. And this is a woman who had been on the throne. She was not nobody. So he had to divorce his, his wife. Uh, divorce, very easy in the Islamic world. You know, marriage is easy. Divorce is easy. Um, these kind of relations are less regulated in some ways than they were in the West. Um, but seven years later, now we're seven years later. And you know, remember, this is a marriage of convenience. This is a political marriage. These people, you know, have probably very little to do with one another. They, they are, it's like president and vice president. But he, as he should be doing, he was courting a political marriage, a diplomatic marriage with the daughter of a nearby um, state. And this is, of course, what political leaders do. One of the ways that they secure diplomatic relations is they form marriages with the daughters of that other house so that the two houses have a combined genealogy. So he starts to do that. He starts to court this, this princess. And when Shajradur finds out, she is enraged because she has now been not only displaced from the throne, but she's also going to be just one of multiple wives. And also, you know, let's face it, it was going to be a younger, you know, wife, and it probably would have been a real marriage as opposed to what she had with him. So she orders his assassination. She sends her slaves, her personal attendants, into the bathhouse. It's wonderfully described. He's, he's been playing polo. He comes home from the polo field, and she says, oh, honey, I'll pour you a bath. You need a bath. So they pour him a bath. And while he's in the bath, which is perfect because he doesn't have his sword on him in the bath. No one brings their weapons into the bathtub with them. While he's in the bathtub, completely unarmed, they kill him. Well, you know, it gets rid of one problem, but it just creates another problem. Because now, once again, there's no Kayla, uh, there's no Sultan. Uh, she's been, she's overstepped the bounds of what women are supposed to do. They're not supposed to be that kind of an agent, you know killing the actual sultan. This is a terrible thing. And also, we forget that there was that divorced former wife who's still in the picture. And she had had a son with the guy who's now lying in the bathtub dead. And so she still has a relationship with him. She is still the mother of his son. And she is infuriated that now her ex-husband has been killed. 
And so she orders the assassination of Tree of Pearls. So Tree of Pearls is killed. I mean, there's all these, you know, details that actually exist and that, that I talk about in the book. But just to make a long story short, she's killed. And she's killed at a moment when her reputation has so fallen and she has so few allies that the texts, which may or may not be accurate in this respect, but they say that she was she was also in the bathhouse, right? If you want to kill someone in, in this pre-modern world, you always get them in the bathhouse because you know they have not only no clothes, but also no guns. No, well, they don't have guns, but no swords, no nothing. So she's in the bathhouse too. She's actually beaten with bath clogs in the bathhouse. That's how she's, I know it's just gruesome, but it's kind of an interesting detail. And then the story is that her body was tossed out the window. So this is not only is she killed, but she's also uh, dishonored, right? A naked woman's body thrown out of the window of the bathhouse. We don't know if that's actually true or not, but it gets repeated in a lot of the different sort of accounts of this dramatic event. Of course, they like a dramatic these, you know, these historians of the past like dramatic stories just as much as we do, and they're just as capable of embellishing as we are. So one of the things in the book I'm very careful to do is to say this may or may not be true. <laughs> you know, we have to be aware that storytelling, you know, seduces us with its own kind of charms. Okay, so speaking of these tombs that she built, she built one for her husband in the center of the city and one for herself just outside of the city. These are remarkable little structures because they're domed and because they commemorate political individuals, not saints, not religious figures, uh, not people who have ties to the prophet, but purely political figures. This is a new thing that had not happened before. And it turns architecture, it doesn't turn architecture, it turns the madrasa, right, which is where she builds the tomb of her husband, Sultan Salih, her first husband, it turns it into a commemorative institution so that it's not only a place for teaching theology, but it also becomes a place that preserves the memory of this very important man who turned back the crusaders. Uh, hers also performs that same role. The, the, the end result, you know, sort of going forward several centuries, is that Cairo becomes a city of domes. Uh, a city in which these very distinctive, sometimes very ornamented domes rise above the city. And each of those domes marks the resting place of a sultan or an important prince. So they, they take on this kind of symbolic function that we sometimes don't recognize. We recognize the minaret, right? That's the sign of the place of prayer. But the dome is the sign of the person buried beneath it. Well, fascinating story of uh, Shadr Adur and her demise, uh, whether fully true with the deforestation or not. Um, but um, your last chapter um, talks about matronage, and I really enjoyed this, uh, this term. Uh, would you tell us a little bit um, how it relates to Shadr Adur, of course, and how did you coined, uh, coined it, came to uh, using it in your book? Yeah, well, the, you know, matronage as a word is obviously the kind of opposite of patronage. And as I reflected on that, I thought, wow, patronage has all these connotations of, of um, power, of patriarchy, of um, generosity, right? If someone gives you their patronage, and matronage sounds like, you know, a stout 
you know, middle-aged lady, right? I mean, that, honestly, that's what it sounds like to me. These are the kind of connotations. And, and I had to kind of ask myself, where do these come from? Why do we, why do we just in the very words that we use, why does it come with this gendered baggage of power, with patronage, and a kind of has been, you know, ineffectual quality of um, matronage. And so by using it, I was trying to kind of turn that around. I was trying to kind of both shed a light on it and also to say, well, this is this is matronage for you. This is tree of pearls rising to become sultan. That's what matronage is. And also, you know, her body as the as the bearer of a son. Remember, it's a son who doesn't survive, but a bearer of the son for that that dynasty that would not exist if it was not for these women and their bodies bearing them sons. That's matronage. That's an extraordinary form of power and significance. So I was trying to kind of interrogate that and play with that a little bit in that chapter. And then, you know, to think about, you know, we talk about Shajaradur as a as a unique individual, right? As a as an exception, right? She was this crazy example of a woman who rules, but it's like everybody who rises to become sultan is unusual and distinctive and important, and they break the mold. All of these people are unusual. So it's, again, you know, to kind of point to her as being exceptional, it almost says that all the men who become sultan are not exceptional. That's the norm. And maybe it is. Maybe that is the norm, and it's not normative for a woman to become sultan. But, but um, yeah, I go back and forth between seeing her as exceptional and seeing her as kind of a confirmation of everything that women can do, right? Why should this be exceptional? Women can rule. Yeah. There are modern there are modern nuances that enter into it in that last chapter as I think about what this means for me and for all of us. Indeed. Well, I had this great pleasure talking to Dee Fairchild Ruggles on her book, Tree of Pearls, the Extraordinary Architectural Patronage of the 13th Century Egyptian Slave Queen, Shajar al-Dur. And uh, to ask um, one or two last questions, um, would, um, you know, if we play that game, who would you invite over for dinner? Would Shajar Adur be one of the people you would be keen in inviting for dinner or would it be perhaps too much drama? <laughs> I would invite her for dinner. I would certainly not invite her to join me at the health club. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> to be on a safe side, absolutely. <laughs> well, I also really enjoyed right at the end in, in, in the last chapter when you are, as I say, playing with this more of a modern concept of uh, women rulership, how you also um, flash out that uh, she also contributed into, in, cert- in a certain way, allowing for a specific ego to come forward, to um, sort of give it a, this a sense of selfhood, and that this actually is made possible for all future sultans when we have um, all these big names of Sultan Khalwan, Sultan Hassan, um, Sultan Baibas, um, but originates from this woman and a slave who came from obscurity to become a sultan. I really hope that our listeners equally enjoyed our talk as I enjoyed speaking to you and, of course, as I enjoyed reading uh, your book. 
And because we are at the end, we are recording our session right at the last day of the 2021. Um, your book finishes with a lovely recipe for umali, for a traditional Egyptian bread pudding. Would you be kind enough to share that with us? Sure. Uh, that was, again, a sort of play on nature dinge, right? We, recipes are something we associate with women. And there's this story that when... Um, when Shajaradur, when Tree of Pearls is assassinated by the ex-wife of this military commander that the ex-wife celebrates by inventing a sweet dessert called Om Ali, the mother of Ali, Ali being the son. And this is the recipe. And I have to say, this is a very political thing that I added to the book because everybody in Cairo has their own version of the recipe. And I had to be very careful not to favor one or the other, but I go for the, the simplest version, which is you take some croissant, some you know puff pastry or some flaky pastries, and you rip them up and you line up a, a pan with them. This is the easy way of making it. And then you bring uh, a liter of milk, you know, just a quantity of milk. You don't really have to measure anything in this to boil. You put some cinnamon and whatever spices you like. This is where I'm not going to get involved in the politics of whether you add cardamom or, or whatever, uh, a little sugar. And you can put some cream in there, too, to make it nice and creamy. And then you uh, sprinkle some nuts and some uh, maybe some raisins or whatever kind of, you know, pistachios, whatever you like, onto the, the pastry. And then you pour that milky, creamy mixture on top. Uh, and, and then you sprinkle some more nuts on top of that. And then you pop it in the oven and you bake it for, I don't know, maybe, maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes until it gets kind of brown on top. It's absolutely delicious, really easy to make, um, and uh, it uh, became a favorite of mine as I was doing my research in Cairo. <laughs> research for the recipe. <laughs> of course, as we do. <laughs> That's what we do when we go for research. Thank you so much, Didi, for this beautiful talk. I uh, was Tanya Tuller talking to Ditha Child Ruggles on her book, Tree of Pearls, out now. Uh, published by Oxford University Press, and you were listening to New Book uh, Network podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Tanya. It was a pleasure.